So this crisis is taking lives, it's destroying families, it's shattering communities all across the country. And that's the thing about substance abuse. It doesn't discriminate. It touches everybody. Good evening. You're listening to KCSB News, your local community radio news program from the Santa Barbara area. I'm Joyce G. And I'm Zuri Wilson. Today is Monday, November 22nd, 2021. In tonight's newscast, California legislators have authorized harm reduction services in select cities in hopes of curbing overdoses. The opioid epidemic has been a persistent problem for decades, but worsened substantially during the pandemic. More than 100,000 people died from an opioid overdose between April 2020 and April 2021 due to the reduced access to medical care and the increased availability of street drugs. Tonight, we bring you a feature episode on the opioid epidemic and lawmakers' contentious solution. But before we begin today's show, a warning that we'll be talking about drugs and substance use disorders today. If you or someone you love is struggling with an addiction, you can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Helpline at one 800 662 help. Again, that's 1-800-662-HELP. Twenty-one million Americans suffer from an addiction. As a result of factors like drug overdoses and suicides, American life expectancy declined in 2015, the first time since World War I and the 1918 influenza pandemic. Since 1999, a staggering 841,000 Americans have died from drug overdoses, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that nearly 500,000 of those deaths were related to opioids. With astonishing statistics like these, advocates and researchers alike are determined to prevent any more unnecessary deaths. I spoke with one researcher to help us understand how opioids work in the first place. Dr. Karen Sumslinski is a professor of psychological and brain sciences and member of the Neuroscience Research Institute here at UC Santa Barbara. My name is Karen Zemlinski, and I've been uh, in the psychology, psychological and brain sciences department now for almost 17 years. It'll be March, will be my lab anniversary. And basically, my research focuses on the effects of repeated drug exposure, whether it's us giving the animals different drugs of abuse or the animals taking the drugs themselves, uh, particularly on the brain and on other aspects of behavior like anxiety and depression, as well as psychosis and cognitive function like thinking and memory. That's so interesting. Um, so before we dive into talking about opioids today, I've actually heard about research into the dopamine D2 receptor as a possible genetic predisposition to addiction. And it's clear there are many biopsychosocial causes at play. So what exactly are some of addiction's risk factors? So there are actually, sadly, a lot of risk factors, but you really raise a really, really important point that we know there is not a single cause of addiction. If there was a single cause for addiction, as I tell my class, we would have a cure by now. What we know is that there is a really complex interaction between genetics and the environment. And so we do know, as you just mentioned, that a family history of drug use can make you more vulnerable. The question is, if you have a family history of drug use, is that because you have genetics that might make you more vulnerable to like a particular kind of drug or develop an addiction to the drug? 
Or is it because you're raised in an environment where drugs or drinking is acceptable and perhaps underage drug use is acceptable? Or is it both? It's hard to parse the genetics out from uh, the social aspects. But we do know the earlier you start drug use, whether it's drinking underage or any other type of drug, smoking, marijuana, the greater the chances are that you'll have a problem with addiction or other psychiatric disorder later in life. We also know that certain uh, psychiatric disorders have a very high comorbidity with certain addictions. So for instance, anxiety disorders and depression, there's a high rate of what we call comorbidity, co-occurrence of these depressive anxiety disorders and alcoholism, for instance, with psychosis or schizophrenia. Approximately 95% people, of people with schizophrenia smoke cigarettes. Wow. This is not some sort of coincidence, right? So we think that whatever is going on in the brain that is leading to that particular neuropsychiatric condition, those brain changes might be making you more vulnerable to, uh, to develop an addiction to a certain class of drug. We know that opioids are a type of drug derived from the opium poppy plant, and a lot of us have heard about some of these like oxycontin, morphine, fentanyl, and heroin, but could you please tell us more about how opioids actually work in our body? Yeah, so the term opioid refers to anything that looks like morphine, basically. Oxycontin, fentanyl, heroin, all of these drugs are opioids. They are synthetic or semi-synthetic, but because they act in the brain the same way as morphine, we call them opioids. So what do these drugs do? All of these drugs are what we call uh, agonists, drugs that are capable of stimulating a receptor. And it's one very specific receptor. It's called the mu, the Greek word, uh, letter M, the mu receptor. And mu, the letter M, is for morphine, because morphine was one of the first drugs to be characterized as binding to this receptor. Now, this receptor is an inhibitory receptor. And so when you stimulate it with morphine or fentanyl or Oxycontin or what have you, you then basically shut off or slow down the way the, the neurons in your brain are working. So for pain, that's great. You don't want to feel the pain. So when the morphine comes and stimulates the mu receptor on your nerve fibers, your pain fibers, you stop the pain. Problem is you also have those um, uh, receptors on the neurons that go to your lungs. And thus, if you overdose or take too much of these uh, types of drugs, you'll slow your breathing or actually stop your breathing. And that's how people die on opioid drugs. They also slow up different parts of your brain, which makes you feel really relaxed and euphoric. And that is a nice feeling, understandably. But the therapeutic ratio or how safe these different opioids are because the receptors are also on those nerves into your lungs is fairly narrow. So you don't have a lot of wiggle room there between that nice relaxing feeling, which is usually why people take these drugs or abuse these drugs and their potential to be toxic or fatal. So earlier before we were talking about 
how opioids work. You mentioned that opioid is an agonist. And oftentimes when people are suffering from an opioid overdose, they'll be given naloxone, which is an antagonist. So how do opioid antagonists like these work to reverse an opioid overdose? So if you just think about, if you've ever been in drama, you know there's the protagonist and then the antagonist. The antagonist is the bad guy, the person to try to make the protagonist's job more difficult. And it's the same way with pharmacology. So an agonist is a drug that can bind to a receptor and turn that receptor on. An antagonist is the opposite. That's what the AN stands for. So what an antagonist does is it will bind to the same receptor, but it can't turn it on. So it's like someone parked a Hummer in your parking spot. It's parked there for a tank. It's parked there and you can't move it. A drug like naloxone or Narcan will compete with that morphine at that receptor and kick it off. And that's why Narcan or naloxone is so effective. If you get there in good time, if someone's suffering from an overdose, to really kick the drug off the receptor, once it's off the receptor, the person can start breathing again. And that's why it's such an effective medication. Before you attempt or try any of these sorts of drugs, talk to people who have used them before and learn about their effects. We are living in an age where you can Google, how do you die on oxycodone? Or how do people die on oxycodone? Or is fentanyl dangerous? You know, you can find that information really, really quickly. And I think being educated about the drugs, how they work on their brain, on your brain, how they can affect you in the short term, like cause you to stop breathing. You know, being aware of these sorts of things makes you a smarter recreational user. And so if you are inclined to try these things, make sure you read a lot about them and talk to student drug and alcohol programs. They are not judgmental. They're there to help you. And we want to make sure that all UCSB students and people in the community are the smartest and safest folks around. So don't ever hesitate to reach out and ask questions if you have any concerns about any type of drug or alcohol-related issue. In a country where 21 million people suffer from an addiction and only 3,000 physicians are trained to treat them, any effective remedy is welcome. One such treatment, harm reduction, which essentially provides people a safe space to inject drugs without judgment under close supervision. California has recently become a hotbed of contention as state lawmakers push for harm reduction's normalization. SB 57, introduced by California State Senator Scott Weiner and passed in April of this year, hopes to do just that. The bill authorizes San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Oakland to create centers where drugs, sterile supplies, and treatment references are provided. These centers will also have trained staff ready to administer opioid antagonists like Narcan. 
Critics, like the California Narcotic Officers Association, believe harm reduction programs only promote drugs or simply don't work, but harm reduction programs can have positive impacts on participants. Such programs already in place around the globe have been praised for preventing deaths and reducing the risk of diseases like HIV. These centers help foster trust between healthcare professionals and those with substance use disorders, which is crucial for when people decide to commit to treatment. So what exactly happens at these programs? According to the LA Times, the Center for Harm Reduction, a part of Homeless Healthcare Los Angeles, never demands that people stop using drugs. Their goal is to boost safety overall through things like offering clean needles to prevent disease transmission, providing naloxone spray to combat overdoses, and instructing on the safest places to inject. Medicine is also given to help manage cravings and withdrawal, and even reduce or avoid drugs altogether. With such a positive impact, how come supervised consumption sites aren't more common? Former California Governor Jerry Brown once vetoed a bill to test run these centers for fears of enabling drug use. Harm reduction sites across the country have to operate carefully, since they could be prosecuted. However, as part of its drug policy, the Biden administration supports, quote, enhancing evidence-based harm reduction efforts, end quote. But Joe Biden's not the first president to attempt to tackle the opioid epidemic. President Bill Clinton was in office when the first wave of crisis hit in 1999, with the boom in prescription opioid abuse. Clinton ran on a policy of rehabilitation over incarceration, but he eventually passed legislation that upheld harsh prison sentences for those caught with small amounts of crack cocaine, who were overwhelmingly black men, while powdered cocaine users were usually white. The punishment for powdered cocaine was typically less severe than for the same amount of crack cocaine. And when George W. Bush took office, he began to implement drug-controlled strategies. The White House released a statement and report in February 2006, praising the success of the anti-drug efforts. But listen to the following paragraph, where the Bush administration admits a shortcoming. Quote, The president's strategy has an impressive record of accomplishment, but important work remains to be done. Oxycontin, a prescription drug used as a painkiller, is the only drug for which the survey reports increase in the use across all three age groups. End quote. According to the CDC, the second wave of the crisis hit in 2010 with a spike in heroin overdoses during the Obama administration. A year later, President Obama passed his Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention Plan, where he supported grant funding for prescription drug monitoring programs, or PDMPs. These are statewide electronic databases that monitor prescriptions for substances with a high risk for addiction and have resulted in fewer opioid prescriptions. The same report also discusses the impact of pain clinics that purposefully overprescribe analgesics. Why? Pure greed. These aptly named quote-unquote pill mills have been found all over the country, but gained notoriety in Florida, where an astonishing 90 out of 100 of America's top opioid prescribers were located during the peak of these clinics in 2010. In response, Florida enacted a series of statewide efforts, maintaining their autopsy system that reports more detailed overdose information, creating pain clinic regulations and requiring certificates, approving state law enforcement grades, and mandating that all pharmacies implement PDMPs. And these strategies, according to a 2014 study led by Hall Johnson, resulted in 23.2% decrease in prescription drug death rates. President Obama also issued a memorandum to federal departments addressing prescription drug and heroin abuse in 2015. The memorandum offers two ways to address these addictions, training medical professionals on the most appropriate way to prescribe painkillers and associated risks, as well as improving access to medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. Two years later, his 2017 fiscal year budget approved $1 billion to expand access to opioid abuse treatment.
Despite these actions, the Obama administration failed to effectively curtail the widespread use of fentanyl. The CDC notes this was the time the third wave hit, 2013 spike in synthetic opioids like fentanyl, which is 100 times more potent than morphine. But according to the Washington Post, before the third wave hit, federal officials underestimated fentanyl, viewing it as part of the overall opioid crisis rather than treating it as a separate entity that needed its own strategy. Tens of thousands of Americans had to die for Congress to act. You see, federal legislators never really provide much funding to fight fentanyl or opioids in general. Customs and Border Control was unequipped in both manpower and detection resources, while the U.S. Postal Service didn't require electronic monitoring of international packages, which made it difficult to detect fentanyl ordered online. It wasn't until 2018 that Congress finally passed 660 pages of bipartisan legislation aimed at tackling the opioid crisis, and a year later, legislation that closed this Postal Service loophole, the 2018 law known as a Substance Use Disorder Prevention that Promotes Opioid Recovery and Treatment, or Support for Patients and Communities Act, was a fusion of over 70 other bills and was signed into law by President Donald Trump on October 24, 2018. It dedicated over $3.3 billion to make therapy and medication-assisted treatment more accessible, to establish grant programs for hospitals, to use alternatives to opioids, and to require a screening for risk of substance use disorder during the initial Medicare preventive exam. The bill also increased funding for both the FDA and U.S. Customs and Border Patrol to combat the shipping of synthetic opioids. Despite his accomplishment as well as his push to slow China's exports of fentanyl, experts say President Trump failed in other respects. The opioid crisis was a critical issue during the 2016 election. According to NPR, overdoses were escalating in battleground states like New Hampshire and Ohio. In late October 2017, Trump declared the crisis a public health emergency. No part of our society, not young or old, rich or poor, urban or rural, has been spared this plague, drug addiction. Publicly, President Trump was taking great strides to fight this crisis but the White House considered cutting the funding for the Office of National Drug Control Policy by 94%, though this decision was later reversed. And in December 2019, the U.S. Government Accountability Office criticized the Trump administration for failing to delineate a proper national opioid strategy for either 2017 or 2018, as required by law. Trump's threats to abandon the Affordable Care Act worry experts since Medicaid programs provide insurance for 40% of Americans receiving opioid addiction treatment. For now, though, the Affordable Care Act has survived these attacks. During his campaign, now President Joe Biden advocated for protecting and expanding the ACA to fight the opioid crisis. His website also proposes holding pharmaceutical companies accountable, increasing the availability of prevention, treatment, and recovery services, and, quote-unquote, reforming the criminal justice system so that no one is incarcerated for drug use alone. But civil rights groups say this last proposal does not seem to be coming to fruition. On September 2nd, the Biden administration proposed a new drug policy that critics claim would widen systemic racial disparities. To combat the supply of certain synthetic opioids, the Biden administration recommended classifying these fentanyl-related substances as Schedule I drugs, the most restrictive category. Schedule I drugs include things like LSD, heroin, peyote, and marijuana. Sakira Cook, the senior director for the Leadership Conference in Civil and Human Rights, said that 70% of defendants facing fentanyl-related charges in recent years have been people of color. In response to the criticism, the Office of National Drug Control Policy stated the proposal is part of a larger effort to combat the opioid epidemic, which includes $10.7 billion to expand access to prevention, treatment, recovery, and, of course, harm reduction services. The office also noted that the proposal would allow judges to throw out or reduce prison sentences for those convicted of crimes related to fentanyl-type substances if these substances are later removed from the Schedule I category. 
But activists criticized these quote-unquote prosecute-first, ask-questions-later approach, arguing that those convicted can potentially spend years in prison while losing access to jobs, housing, loved ones, and legal and scientific resources. Legislators hope to put the plan into action before January 28th, when the current regulations on fentanyl expire. Activists hope that they'll reconsider this to avoid repeating the harsh drug laws of the 1980s and 90s. How did we get here in the first place? What drove America into what University of Washington professor Dr. Gary Franklin describes as, quote-unquote, the worst man-made epidemic in history? Sam Quinones, in his book Dreamland, reports that it was both the Purdue white-collar executives and the blue-collar Nayarit, Mexico natives. The Salisco boys, as they have been nicknamed, sought relief from poverty. What better place to achieve success and security than in America? They came to the United States with the dream to break free from limited education and job prospects using the opioid and poppies that flourished nearby to create black tar heroin. They were mid-mannered and polite. They grew wealthy, constructing homes while boasting their Levi's 501s. They learned and adapted, improving both their evasion and customer service skills. But what about their counterparts, the executives and sales reps of drug companies? Are they really that different? Today, we know the role companies like Purdue Pharma played in the opioid epidemic. In Dreamland, Quinones details just how manipulative these companies were. In 1980, Dr. Herschel Jick, a professor at Boston University, and his graduate student Jane Porter wrote a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. They said that from a recent study, quote, out of 11,882 patients who received at least one narcotic preparation, there were only four cases of reasonably well-documented addiction in patients who had no history of addiction, end quote. The whole letter isn't longer than a paragraph, yet pharmaceutical companies still use it to promote their painkillers. How? Well, Jick and Porter described their results based on patients in a hospital setting, well, Big Pharma extrapolated this to claim that opioids were safe at home, which they are most definitely not, since medical professionals are not keeping a close eye on them. Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of oxycodone, was extremely aggressive in its marketing and later received a warning from the FDA for misleading consumers. The company even trained its sales rep to cite the Jick and Porter letter and say that the risk of addiction was less than 1%. In reality, the National Institute of Health says that between 21 to 29 percent of patients who were prescribed opioids misused them, while 8 to 12 percent develop an opioid use disorder. And around the same time Purdue Pharma's OxyContin was approved by the FDA in late 1995, the pain advocacy movement began to gain traction. Pain can't be quantified. There's no standard way to measure it and compare it, like, say, with body temperature, breathing and heart rates, or blood pressure. But activists like the American Pain Society, according to Dr. Ronald Hirsch, started the pain as a fifth vital signs campaign anyway. They didn't, and of course, couldn't offer any way to quantify pain, like you can with the four aforementioned vital signs. As a result, there was immense pressure on doctors to prescribe painkillers based on what their patients reported feeling, but no real way to tell if they were over-exaggerating their pain. The American Pain Society, the organization responsible for championing quote-unquote pain as the fifth vital sign, later filed for bankruptcy and eventually dissolved in June 2019 as a result of all of the lawsuits they had to fight that claimed they were front groups for pharmaceutical companies. And speaking of lawsuits, there have been over 3,000 filed related to the opioid crisis. According to the Associated Press, plaintiffs include state and local governments, native tribes, and unions. On September 1st of this year, a settlement was conditionally approved by a bankruptcy judge that would remove the Sackler family from owning Purdue Pharma, protect them from any future lawsuits, and potentially dedicate $10 billion to fight the opioid epidemic. Meanwhile, Purdue Pharma actually filed for bankruptcy themselves in September 2019, yet the Sackler family walked away with a net worth of at least $10 billion. As for Johnson & Johnson, they, along with drug distributor companies McKesson Corporation, Amerisource Virgin Corporation, 
and Cardinal Health Incorporated are ordered to pay $26 billion in their own opioid settlement, which also grants them legal immunity. But in any case, no amount of financial compensation can bring back loved ones or heal relationships. Recovery will take the efforts of the entire country to recognize the crisis's longevity and advocate for their family, friends, neighbors, and themselves. And before we go, we want to leave you with the following quote from Dreamland, which we referenced heavily today. Quote, heroin is the most important force for positive change in our country today, end quote. Because while it's true that addiction can drive families apart, it also brings communities together. After all, that which divides us has the power to unite.